All right, well, <clears throat> next, this coming Sunday, 17th, will be our first time back together as a church. I look forward to seeing many of you, as many of you who come. I know there are some who are anxious because they fall into that category of um, people who are high risk. And uh, so you'll still be catching our service online, and that's absolutely okay. That's, that's a wonderful, in fact. And I know some of you will be here, and I look forward to seeing you. But then there, I know that there are some that um, you know, realize that we are asking you to wear masks when you come in, and that doesn't sit well with you, it's not comfortable. And for you, um, I totally understand and respect your prerogative. I would just have you consider one thing, though, that there are those who will be here that absolutely would be blessed to be ministered to by you. Um, if the mask is too high of a price to pay, I get it. But if it's not, if you could understand like Paul said, I become all things to all people that I might reach them for Christ. So I would ask you to reconsider, but at the same time, there's no condemnation in any which way that you choose, okay? My wife put out a very beautiful devotion. The Lord spoke to her heart concerning this whole issue that's going around, and it seems to have the power to divide the body of Christ. And who would ever thought that the wearing or not wearing of masks would be a divisive thing in the body of Christ? Um, it reminds me of the days back in the 1700s when there were the robists and the anti-robists. Um, those who wore robes in the church were thought to be tied with the Anglican church, and that didn't sit well with those who came here to get free from the Anglican church. So on Sunday morning, some of them would ride by on their horses and shoot into the congregation. They had ride-by shootings by the anti-robists. I hope we don't devolve into drive-by shootings by the anti-maskists. All right. But nevertheless, please follow the convictions of your heart and let love be the final say in what you do, okay? All right, um, next Wednesday night. <clears throat> next Wednesday night, we're having a prayer afterglow where our worship team will be leading us in worship and then we will be taking prayer requests over the internet through Facebook, yes? Through the website. And our elders will be coming forward to pray for you, whatever your need may be. And if you do come, which you are welcome to come, um, we'll pray for you here. Not, not going to neglect the ministry of the body, especially right now in these uncertain and very um, interesting times that we're living in. So next Wednesday night, 
7 to 8, a afterglow prayer meeting. Okay? Awesome. All right, we are in the book of Colossians, chapter 4. We're going to read through verses 7 through 18. That's what we're going to study tonight. And <clears throat> this will finish out the book of Colossians. Two weeks after next Wednesday, we will be having um, Larry and Roy teaching. They didn't know that, but they know now. And on Sundays, um, Sherry and I are hopefully going to Italy. We don't know for sure yet. Um, it still may not be safe enough to go. We may not have permission to go. The airlines may have lost our tickets again, but kept the money. That might happen also. But nevertheless, that was always our plan for this time of year. And so we're going to have Jeff Cran on Sunday the... 31st, and he is going to teach us about, um, say it again, Shabbat. Shabbat, that's right, and he'll be doing a Shabbat ceremony here at the church, and again, you're welcome to come, or you're welcome to stay home and watch it, and then the week after that, we have Al-Fadi, um, he'll be coming, teaching us more about the, re the um, revival that's going on amongst many of the Middle Eastern Arabs and Muslims. A big thing that's happening over there right now in the midst of all of this. So praise God for that. And he'll be sharing about things concerning the Middle East. And I'm sure you will be interested in hearing and seeing that. So that's the 4th of June, correct? Correct, thank you very much. All right, Colossians 4, verses 7 through 18. Do you remember the song from Toy Story? You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. When the road looks rough ahead and you've miles and miles from your nice warm bed, just remember what your old pal said. You've got a friend in me. If you've got troubles, I got them too. There isn't anything that I wouldn't do for you. We stick together. We can see it through because you got a friend in me. Yeah, you got a friend in me. Samuel Coleridge, poet, said friendship is a sheltering tree. Friendship is a sheltering tree. Think about it. Friends reach out to us and offer refuge like the branches of a tree. They give you shade, they give you shelter, provision, and protection. Is that true for you? Can some of you say amen to that? Jesus had friends. Uh, when he rose from the dead, <clears throat> he appeared to 500. I guess those would be considered friends. He sent out 70 disciples to minister, remember that? He had 12 disciples who traveled with him and became apostles, that is, except Judas, of course. 
And then among that 12, there were three who were in the inner circle, and that was Peter, James, and John. And of that three, John seemed to enjoy an even closer fellowship with the Lord because he called himself John the Beloved. Chuck Swindoll said, These concentric circles of friends were like sheltering trees, giving comfort and accountability. In the closing of Colossians, in chapter 4, verses 7 through 18, Paul mentions 10 of his closest friends who assisted him in ministry, friends that gave him shelter and shade and provision and protection. There was Tokikus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Mark, Justice, Epaphras, Luke, Demas, Nymphus, and Archippus. Ten good friends. Let's, let's learn about them tonight, and let's look at our own lives and see if we are the type of friends that Paul had. Verse 7. Tukikas will give you a full report about how I'm getting along. He is a beloved brother and faithful helper who serves with me in the Lord's work. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, to let you know how we are doing and to encourage you. Tukikas, Tukikas, if you look at the Strong's, Lection, um, Strong's Dictionary of Words, it has a pronunciation key, and that's the best I can do with it, guys, all right? Now, back in the day, you didn't have CNN, you didn't have Fox News, you couldn't text or cable people. News was carried by word of mouth, mostly by travelers. Hosts usually asked their guests about people they knew elsewhere Small, Paul sent Tukikus for the purpose of bearing news and encouraging the believers in Colossae. Remember how Paul found out about the believers in Colossae? Do you guys remember? Through Barnabas. It was Barnabas who gave Paul a report about this church in Colossae that Paul had never been to before. So now he is sending back Tukikus as a much-beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant. Now notice that word servant. It's the word doulos in the Greek, and it means a bond servant or a willing slave. This, this man is portrayed as a willing slave who is consistent and loyal and trustworthy and reliable. Now I don't know about you, but in friendship, those are valued qualities. It's something that we all should aspire to, to be consistent and loyal and trustworthy and reliable. Then in verse nine, there's Onesimus. He says, I'm also sending Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, one of your own people. He and Tychicus will tell you everything that's happening here. Do you guys remember who Onesimus is? If you read the book of Philemon, you remember. He's a runaway slave from Colossae. He came to know Christ when he encountered Paul in Rome. 
How he found Paul is a mystery, but it was one of those divine appointments. Rome's a big city, and somehow he wandered into Paul's rented apartment, even though he was under guard, and there he accepted Christ. He had fled from his owner, Philemon, who was the recipient of the letter bearing Onesimus, or Philemon's name. And when he escaped from his service to Philemon, Onesimus traveled west all the way to Italy, ending up by God's providence in Paul's rented home. And that led to his conversion to Christ. Now Paul describes Onesimus as a faithful and beloved brother. Do you see the irony? Tychicus, 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 Mr. T, who was free, he called a fellow bond servant, a doulos. But for Onesimus, who was legally a slave, called him a brother. Perhaps he was intentionally trying to put things in perspective. Our unity as believers, the unity that we have in Christ as brothers and sisters, it may not cancel out social distinctions, but we must regard those distinctions as secondary to our primary identity as members of the same family. Regardless of our ethnicity, our social status, or our gender, we're the family of God, and we are one in Christ. And that's the way we are to treat one another. One in Christ, each better than ourselves. Each better than ourselves. Now the next grouping of friends, there are three who are Jews and three who are Gentiles. Now he has mentioned one of them earlier in the letter, that was Epaphras. And two of them, Mark and Luke, are well known to us as writers of the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke. That's right. Now, three of them, though, are uh, probably a little bit unfamiliar to us. Aristarchus, Justice, and Demas. Look at verse 10. Aristarchus, who is in prison with me, sends you his greetings. So does Mark, Barnabas' cousin. As you were instructed before, make Mark welcome if he comes your way. Now Aristarchus, Paul calls him a fellow prisoner. It's his jail buddy, okay? Now we don't know if he had been placed under house arrest with Paul or whether he had been a fellow prisoner elsewhere. In any case, Aristarchus shared some very harrowing ministry experiences with Paul. According to Acts 19.29, he and another brother by the name of, of Gaius were dragged along by a rushing mob during the riot in Ephesus. And he was also with Paul during that long and treacherous voyage by ship to Italy when Paul went to appeal his case to Caesar. And you remember what happened on that journey? He survived a shipwreck in the Adriatic Sea and ended up on the island of Malta. A good word to describe Aristarchus would be tenacious. He wouldn't let go. 
He clung to his calling and his friendship to be with Paul and the ministry. The fact that Aristarchus was still with Paul in Rome when he wrote this letter to the Colossians demonstrates a tenacious commitment and loyalty. I can only imagine that the trials and the hardships that they went through together had a way of bonding them and strengthening their bonds, sort of like uh, soldiers in combat. When they go through uh, combat with one another and it's harrowing and they survive and then when they get home, they're close, they're buddies. Um, platoon leader Larry Walter wrote in an article entitled The Bonds of Soldiers in Combat. He said, working together under stress to overcome difficulty and discomfort in order to accomplish a common goal is a good way to building cohesion in a small team. Normally such bonding requires a long period of working together to become strong. However, the addition of danger and potential death, which can be prevented only by trust and teamwork, plus living together 24 hours a day for days and weeks on end, forges the bond much faster and stronger. Combat soldiers describe the bond hesitantly or openly as love. It's a strong bond. Napoleon Bonaparte said, when soldiers have been baptized in the fire of a battlefield, they have all one rank in my eyes. You see, remember if we, we talked on Sunday about the master passion of your life, being Jesus Christ, serving him and his interests. That is the, the whole purpose that you exist whether you are a banker or you are a street sweeper, whether you are high in society or low on the social ladder, your master passion, hopefully, is Jesus Christ and serving him wholeheartedly. Matter of fact, we, we, we talked about that too a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul mind and strength is to be all in and indeed Aristarchus was all in on this and when you serve with somebody and you both have the same mind and the same heart at going in the same direction you tend to get really tight you tend to become very good friends the next person we want to look at is Mark you guys know remember his other name John Mark that's right he is the writer of the Gospel of Mark. And by the way, the Gospel of Mark is, is actually Peter's perspective of Jesus Christ. It was through interviews with Peter that he wrote that Gospel. But Paul identifies him as Barnabas' cousin. You guys remember Barnabas? The son of encouragement, that's right. So this is the famous John Mark of the first missionary journey. For those of you who are Bible students, you remember this. Uh, Barnabas is excited to pay, take his nephew along. He joins him, and then halfway through the journey, he ups and quits, and he goes home. Um, now, that caused a rift between Paul and Barnabas, because when they got ready to go on their second journey, uh, Barnabas said, this is great, let's go. I'll go grab John Mark, and we'll go. And Paul said, I don't think so. 
and uh, they had words. Matter of fact, the Greek says they had strong words with each other. It was a knockdown, drag out verbal fist fight. And they split up. And Barnabas took John Mark, and Paul took Silas, and they often went on their missionary journey. Well, fast forward years later, and Mark has been reconciled with Paul and serving along him at Rome. As a matter of fact, towards the end of his life, Paul's going to request Mark to be with him because in 2 Timothy 4.11 says he's good for ministry. He's good for service. What I see here is that both men <clears throat> grew through their struggles. Mark grew in maturity and fortitude, and Paul grew in patience and forgiveness. That's rare in American society. What I have seen and experienced in my 40 plus years in ministry is that when, when brothers clash strongly like Barnabas and Saul did, or Paul, that's it. They're not going to talk to each other until Jesus' kingdom come. They won't be reconciled. And that's a sad thing. I think that's a, a sad thing. I think that does not, uh, it doesn't look well on Jesus Christ. It doesn't make him look good at all because we are to be forgiving with one another. There are going to be times when we, we hit each other, bump each other in the head. Proverbs 27, 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Um, it is in friendship that we get to know ourselves. As a man sees his face in the mirror of calm water, we shudder to think what cold and undeveloped beings we should be without the sharpening of friendship. When you apologize to a friend that you have hurt, what does that do to you? It humbles you. Is that a bad thing? Not at all. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. What if you go to a person who hasn't apologized, but you say, I forgive you for what you did? Mm. Does that take humility also? Yeah, it does, if you do it right if you approach it with the right heart because it doesn't guarantee that you're going to be forgiven or restored. So you do it anyway, out of obedience, out of faith. And that's a good thing because humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. All right, let's talk about justice, verse 11. Jesus, the one we call justice, also sends his greetings. These are the only Jewish believers among my co-workers. They are working with me here for the kingdom of God. And what a comfort they have been. All of his friends are there working with Paul for the kingdom of God. They are one heart and they are one mind. And they've been a comfort to Paul. Justice was the third of the three Jewish believers in Christ mentioned. He happened to share the same name as the Lord. Um, the Hebrew name Joshua. His Latin name was Justice, a name that was shared by two other men in the book of Acts. We didn't know anything about this Justice, except that he, Aristarchus and Mark, were fellow workers in the kingdom of God. 
and they were an encouragement to Paul. So in a way, you can say that this guy was a nobody. At least that's all the information we have, right? You ever felt like a nobody in the kingdom of God? That you don't mean anything? There are no nobodies. Does that make sense? It's a double negative. There are no nobodies. Everybody's a somebody. You may feel like a nobody. You won't see your name in a book that mentions Jesus. But you are in a book who's, who's, where Jesus is mentioned. Do you know which one? The Lamb's Book of Life. You are a somebody. A very elect, select, and exclusive somebody. Hope that doesn't bother you. Then there's Epaphras. Verses 12 and 13. Epaphras, who is one of you, meaning he is a Colossian, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayer. That phrase, laboring fervently, is the idea of giving birth. Remember, we talked about this several weeks ago, looking at Elijah as an example where he bent his head, he put his head between his knees and was praying that uh, it would rain after not raining for three years. That is the position of giving birth, and that's the picture here. That Epaphras greets you always laboring fervently for you in prayers. And this is what he prayed that you may stand, that you, the Colossian Christians, may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. You know, in any group of Christians, there's always one who is the prayer warrior. All pray, but there's one that seems to give himself or herself over to prayer more than others. And this was Epaphras. This was his role. Uh, like I said, he was part of the Colossian church, and he's the one that brought the gospel to them. He's the one that started that church. And then he came to Rome to give Paul an update on that church. You could call Epaphras an all-in servant of Jesus Christ, who prayed earnestly and specifically and again, not just for the Colossians, but for the neighboring congregations in Laodicea and Hierapolis. You guys remember the church in Laodicea? Where else do you hear about that church? In the book of Revelation, that's the church that Jesus says, you think you're rich, but you're poor. You think you're clothed, but you're naked. Something goes wrong later on down the line, right? But still, Epaphras labored fervently in prayer for them. Now, let me ask you a question. How is your prayer life, guys? Is it fervent? Is it like giving birth? Um, am I the only one who prays and then gets distracted and succumbs to sleep? <laughs> Pin drop, okay? He prayed fervently. He prayed until there was a breakthrough. That's the idea here, a birth of renewal, a revival in the arts and the lives for those whom he prayed. Do we need that today? Oh, yes, may God increase his tribe among us. 
that we would pray until there is a breakthrough. Um, like it says in Isaiah, he's put watchmen on your walls that will cry out day and night and will give God no rest until he makes Jerusalem a praise in all the earth. We need people that will do that for Calvary Chapel Arrowhead, that we might fulfill the call that is upon our ministry. Do you know it's possible to have a ministry and not fulfill it? Did you know that? You can be called, ordained, and anointed by God and still fall short of finishing. Yeah, it doesn't just happen. It needs to be prayed through because it's spiritual warfare. May God give us a lot of Epaphrasus to come and pray for our church. Next we have Luke. Luke, I am your father, Luke. The doctor. Luke, the beloved doctor, verse 14, sends his greetings and so does Demas. Like Aristarchus, Luke had been with Paul through many ups and downs in the ministry for a long time. We're told that Luke had been trained as a physician, the beloved doctor. Well, how convenient is that? To have your own personal physician on your ministry journeys. Um, not only could he attend to the spiritual and practical needs of those with whom and to whom he was called to minister, but he also addressed the medical needs and of, of Paul. It's it is possible and it's probable that Luke served as Paul's physician, helping him cope with that 2 Corinthians 12, 7 thorn in the flesh, which was more than likely a very eye, strong eye problem. We also know that Luke was a gifted researcher and writer. And uh, he's the one who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He wrote both of those. Then there's Demas, verse 14. In Colossians, the only thing we learn about Demas is that he sends greetings. Say, hey, okay. Um, in Philemon, when you get to the book of Philemon, or that letter, that real small one, one chapter letter, we're merely told that he was a fellow worker with Paul. But he's also mentioned in 2 Timothy 4.10, where Paul said, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Um, that would be the last thing I would ever want to read in the Word of God. You know, I don't know if he is saved or not saved, but if he's in heaven, he's got, he's got a brand on him that's going to last forever. Oh, you're Demas? Yeah, you're the one that deserted Paul? Yeah, that's me. All of us have known friends who have left the faith. Do you guys know friends that have left the faith? I do, and it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. John Mark had a similar lapse in his youth, but he returned to service. Demas lapsed in his later years, and you're probably surprised. You never thought he would fall, but we're never told if he repented or if he returned. No guarantees, folks. And then in verse 15, there's Nympha. Please give my greetings to our brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church that meets in her house. When Christianity was an illegal religion in the Roman Empire, the churches met in private homes. 
And usually the owners of those homes were wealthy members of the congregation who had large enough houses to host a sizable group. Now the houses weren't like what we have, like ranch style houses, you know, or um, they were more like complexes where they might be U-shaped, two stories, but there would be a courtyard in the middle and then there would be like um, a wing on one side, a wing on the other side, and then one wing connecting the two sides together. And the church service in nice weather would be held out in the courtyard and when the weather was inclement, they would move inside to one of the large dining rooms. And of course, only the well-off could have that. So Nympha may have been a wealthy matron of the church in Laodicea. We know that the church in Laodicea was a wealthy church. Remember what he said in Revelation, you think you're rich, but you are poor. And they were rich financially, but poor spiritually. Anyway, this makes me very thankful for those with means whose heart belong to the Lord and have the gift of giving that enable us to do the work of the church. To reach out to places like Casa de Avis that, that has no resources and to bless them and minister to them. That, that's able to help people go out onto the mission field and do the work. For those people, very, very grateful and very, very thankful. Yes, I do pray that God would increase your tribe and I pray that he would prosper everything that you put your hand to do but especially your heart. Now in verse 16, we have a little aside here. After you have read this letter, pass it on to the church at Laodicea so they can read it too. And you should read the letter that I wrote to them. Now the word, the verb read, it means to read aloud. They would not have copies of these letters to pass around or a Bible in the back of the chair that they were sitting in. They would have to say, hey guys, we got this letter, this epistle from Paul, so let me read it to y'all, okay? Um, now the question is though, where, what was it and where is it, the, the epistle from Laodicea? Well, we don't know. Some scholars think that the epistle to the Ephesians was the missing letter, but it's just speculation. The fact that this letter has been lost does not mean we're missing part of God's word. Um, some of the Paul's correspondence to the Corinthian church was lost too, remember? And doesn't mean that we don't have the entire and full word of God. God not only inspired his word, but he providentially watched over it so that nothing would be lost that was supposed to be in the word. And instead of wondering about what we don't have, we should be applying ourselves to what we do have. There's plenty to do without worrying about possibly the lost letters. Then there's Archippus, Archippus, verse 17. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Now, in the letter to Philemon, Paul calls Archippus our fellow soldier. 
implying that he was a hardworking, committed, faithful minister of Christ, another one that is all in. But to this fellow soldier, Paul has a specific message. He says to discharge carefully the duties of the ministry and fulfill the stewardship which you have received in the Lord. That is the amplified version's rendering of that verse. In other words, do what God has shown you to do, Archippus. That's a good word for us as well, to do whatever it is that God has told us, to keep on with whatever it is he's laid upon our hearts individually and corporately in order to bring it to completion. That word fulfill, it carries with it the idea that God has definite purposes for his servants. Okay, would you look at that person next to you who's listening to this? That's a fellow servant, and God has a definite purpose for them. He works in us, he works through us to complete those good works that he's prepared for us. Ephesians 2.10, you want to turn there? Ephesians Paul says, for we are his workmanship. You guys know what that word is, don't you? A lot of you do. Poema. That's where the word we get is poetry. We are his masterpiece, his craftsmanship, his artwork. Created in Christ for good works. So unlike a painting that just hangs on the wall or a statue that just stands in a museum, we are a piece of work going out doing good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, which God prepared beforehand. In other words, he prepared beforehand the specific works for you to do. And according to Colossians 4.17, we need to see it through. We need to see it through. Many start but quit midstream. Have you noticed that? Many start but they quit and they don't finish. Galatians 6 9. Turn there, please. Galatians 6 9. This is what we say to that. When you're tempted to quit, give up on a ministry that you felt called to. And for some reason, it's no longer convenient. It's a, a, almost a hardship for you. And you just want to give up and quit. Galatians 6, 9 says, let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. I remember Chuck saying to pastors in the conferences who were ready to quit their church, ready to give up. He says, well, do you think you can hang on for one more month? Can you hang on for one more year? Don't give up because you may be giving up too soon. Don't get tired of doing what is good at the right time. You will reap a harvest of blessing if you don't give up. Okay, let's go to the final greeting, Colossians 4.18.
Colossians 4.18 says, Here is my greeting in my own handwriting. The rest of the letter was penned most likely by Timothy. Timothy was probably acting as a scribe. And I think because Paul had such a hard time with his eyes, it was hard for him to write. But he probably wrote his greeting or his name at the very end of the letter in huge letters. And he says, remember my chains. Not asking for pity, not asking for people to feel sorry for him. He's asking for prayer. What kind of prayer would you pray for Paul, knowing that he is in chains? Would you pray for his release? Possibly. But the chances of him being released are next to none, not being in Rome, not being a Christian. But the things that he would really appreciate was the God to strengthen him in the inner man, to give him the perseverance and the endurance to be able to deal with the fact that he's in prison. And this is something else about Paul that we forget. He's just a man. He's not super saint, you know. He didn't take his robes off and you see a big S on his chest. He was a man. And being in prison and being whipped and being stoned and being chased out of place to place, it still takes an emotional toll on you. Now, of course, if he gets out, what's he going to go do? Well, he's not moving to Florida and buying a condo and retiring. I can guarantee you that. He's going to get out there and do the same thing that got him put in prison in the first place. He's going to be preaching the gospel because that's his master passion to serve Christ. How's he going to make a living? He'll, he'll either live off of whatever meager offerings the church will give him, or he will make tents. That was his job. But his master passion, the reason of his living, was to glorify Christ. Remember, we've said this the last couple of weeks. For me to live is Christ, he said, and to die is gain. So, remember my chains. Pray for me. Pray that God would strengthen me in the inner end. Pray for me to develop more endurance and perseverance and patience and all of this. And pray for me that when the end comes, I'll be able to accept the will of God. And we all know what the will of God was for Paul because it wasn't long after this that he was taken out and beheaded. And then he says, may God's grace be with you. It's the same way he started this whole letter. May God's grace be with you. Now he closes it with the benediction of grace. And as it began, and so it ends, because it's all about grace, God's unmerited favor towards you. All right, that, uh, that concludes our study in the book of Colossians the letter of Colossians. And I just want to remind you of a couple of things. Last Sunday, we talked about the fact that Jesus no longer calls us servants. What does he call us? Friends, right? It's good to have friends. It's really good to have friends in high places. There is no higher place than being on the right hand of the throne of God. And his thoughts toward you, Jeremiah 29, 11. Thoughts of the future, thoughts of a hope, thoughts of peace, 
That's good, yeah? It may not be in this lifetime, but praise God it is in the next. The next lifetime is a whole lot longer than this one, yeah? Keep your mind on those things. Like the song that we sang tonight, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are pure, whatever things are righteousness, whatever things bring God glory, meditate on those things and God's peace will keep your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. It's a fact, Jack. All right. Let's stand and let's pray. Come on up. Lord Jesus, I thank you for being our sheltering tree. I thank you for the shade. I thank you for the provision. I thank you for the protection. And I thank you for the promise. We are your creation. You chose us before the foundation of the world. And you've ordained us that we should go forth and bear fruit and that that fruit should remain. Help us to be like one of the men that Paul would say thank you to, Lord. Onesimus and, and Aristarchus and Mark and all of them, Father. Fulfilling our own little role, fulfilling the good purpose for which you sent us. And cause us, Lord, even in these days of uncertainty, to continue to keep our eyes upon you. And may we love one another with a fervent love that prefers one another before our own selves and thus fulfill the law of Christ. I pray this in Jesus' precious name.